Welcome to the Filmlinks Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is episode 119, Gallant Gilliam. Yeah, uh, the uh, man who kind of fashions himself as Don Quixote himself. Um, in some Almost ways. Almost directly, which we'll Almost get Almost directly, <laughs> yeah, which is for the bonus podcast. Uh, but right now we're talking about um, ex-Monty Python member, well, I guess they're all ex-Monty Python members, <laughs> um, Terry Gilliam, who started off as, well, we're about to get into that. Terry Gilliam was born in 1940 in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He was, in fact, the only American Python. Um, his I think I actually soon, didn't even realize that. Yeah. Uh, his family soon moved to Los Angeles, uh, where he was a straight-A student in high school and prom king. He even graduated from Occidental College in 1963 with a uh, bachelor's in political science. Uh, and he was always kind of fairly left-leaning, and he said that he uh, had to leave America because if he didn't, he would probably find himself ending up being a bomb-throwing terrorist, uh, which had a different connotation in 1960s than it does now. Um, so essentially, he just wasn't down with American politics and bounced. Uh, he did work as an animator early in his career and later in his career as well. Uh, but mostly early on, he was a strip cartoonist, and one of the photographic strips he worked on was in Help Magazine and featured John Cleese. Uh, and that's kind of how he started to fall into the comedy world of the Pythons, uh, who'd eventually be asked to join for the show, uh, where he was a member from the outset, but credited first only as an animator and then later on as a full member. So his name would be separated in the credits and eventually included with the rest of them. Uh, his cartoons, which stitched uh, the other sketches in the show together, eventually became the visual signature of the Monty Python show. Um, they, they featured soft gradients, uh, odd and bulbous shapes, uh, and backgrounds and characters that were made from cutouts from other pieces of art and very often Victorian photographs. Um, anybody who's at all familiar with Monty Python knows the art style of their 2D stuff, yeah. and that is all Terry Gilliam, which is very important to um, his live-action work that we're going to discuss today. Uh, We've actually he, done an episode on Monty Python more generally, so you guys yes. can go back and check out our our episode on Holy Grail and Life of Brian and Meaning of Life. Yeah. Um, and he co-directed Holy Grail with Terry Jones, which is kind of his first uh, live-action directing gig. Uh, and Terry Jones would produ- or will direct the other two um, Python films. Uh, but as the group slowly broke up after uh, the production of Holy Grail and would come back together for their other two films, but would eventually break apart, um, he started working on his own independent movies uh, including Jabberwocky from 1977, which actually stars Michael Palin in the leading role, and Time Bandits from 1981, which features both Michael Palin and John Cleese. Um, and he likes to think of his films in terms of trilogies, and they're not necessarily independent trilogies. So, for instance, oh, these trilogies the three, are designated by uh, by by Gilliam, Gilliam himself. himself. Okay. Um, so he thinks of the one we're going to talk about today are probably three of his most well-known films. Um, mm-hmm. kind of given at the height of his popularity right after and during the end of the Python era. Uh, these are called the Trilogy of Imagination uh, by Gilliam himself, and we're going to tell you what those are here in just a minute. But two of the other ones that I wanted to mention real quick are the Trilogy of Americana, which includes The Fisher King from 1991, 12 Monkeys from 1995, and Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas from 1998, uh, which... I think most people know about Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. It got really popular on Netflix like a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's and all that about that iconic Americana imagery issues. of the fisheye and that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he also has a dystopian satire trilogy, which features Brazil, which we're going to talk about today, 12 Monkeys, which was already part of the Americana trilogy, and Zero Theorem from 2013. Um, so he likes to classify his movies as such. He's very conscious that he has themes that he tends to work within and expound upon over multiple attempts. Um, he is also one of those directors that ha- typically has a lot of uh, interesting productions. He has a lot of trouble in a lot of his productions, and we're going to get into that as well. Um, he's kind of just a combative person overall as well. So we'll, we'll talk about this, that today on the show. But before we get to all of that, what are the actual movies we're talking about today on the Film Links, Jonathan? Yeah, so we're starting off with Time Bandits from 1981, uh, which features 
uh, Python's John Cleese and Michael Palin, who also co-wrote the film. Uh, and then we're moving on to Brazil from 1985, which was nominated at the Oscars for Best Original Screenplay and Best Set Decoration uh, and includes the Python uh, Michael Palin yet again. Uh, and then we will be wrapping up with The Adventures of Baron Munchausen from 1988, uh, which is kind of based on an old, uh, it's loosely based on an old fictional character, um, Baron Munchausen, from a book called something very similar to The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Uh, and that was nominated for Best Set Decoration, Best Costume Design, Best Makeup, and Best Visual Effects, uh, featuring Python Eric Idle this time. Yes, and uh, without further ado, let's jump into the individual breakdowns of these movies. Jason, take it away. Time Bandits from 1981. Kevin is an 11-year-old history buff with a vivid imagination and terribly dull parents. One night, a gang of time-traveling ex-space-time repairmen show up, and Kevin quickly finds himself whisked into an adventure through time. The group follow a map they've stolen from the Supreme Being to steal the riches from famous points in history including Napoleon, King Agamemnon, Robin Hood, and more. Meanwhile, the evil being, called Evil, hounds the group, hoping to secure their map and his freedom from the cage he's been trapped in. All right, Jonathan. Uh, I have seen all of these movies before. I'm curious what your history with Terry Gilliam's work has been. Is it is it something you're really familiar with or something that you're rather new to? Pretty limited uh, beyond what we've already studied with the money with the the pythons in general. Uh, but I had seen Time Bandits before, uh, so I think this is the only one from this week that I was familiar with. Uh, and it's it's a lot of fun. It's very different in some ways from the other two, but they all kind of have a thread of just being big and larger than life, which of course is kind of inherent in, when you're talking about a trilogy called the Imagination Trilogy. Yeah, I, I, I kind of like to look at these three films in particular as kind of seeing the development of uh, Gilliam as a storyteller away from Monty Python. And you can mm-hmm. kind of see it in the structure of each film, right? So like Time Bandits is very left-turny, right? Like it, it, it kind of composes it's essentially... It's almost vignette. Yeah, it's a seri- almost yeah, a, it's vignette a series show. of vignettes and you take random left turns in between them. That makes sense, but it feels very much like a Python movie in that sense, right? Mm -hmm. And you have a lot of Python, well, you have two Pythons in it, besides Gilliam himself, um, and uh, Michael Palin and John Cleese, who both both make appearances. John Cleese is Robin Hood, and Michael- Oh my gosh, I love that that bit. (laughs) And then Michael Palin as, uh, he plays multiple characters, but he's essentially the incarnation of like the same pansy character who appears over and over, like reincarnated, throughout time um yeah, with uh shelly <laughs> he plays opposite shelly duvall and her name in both the scenes that they're in is pansy and every scene that he's in with her he is acting the pansy while trying to seduce pansy yes it is it is very funny um it, it's very all over the place it has a slight structure to it but doesn't doesn't hinge on the structure a whole lot right like i don't feel mm-hmm. like the structure of this film is super important. In a lot of ways, it boils down to kind of your traditional kids movie. Um, you know, you have a kid who wants to go on an adventure. Kid goes on an adventure. Kid saves the day and learns a lesson and makes friends along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and the individual plot points, you know, happen, but they don't change too much. Like if they were to change, they wouldn't alter the impact of the story all that much right right i mean we've we've got our MacGuffin, which is this map that has a bunch of uh time portals so that lets us jump around and have a bunch of adventures in basically the most different types of historical uh and eventually legendary settings that you can think of and a bunch of these settings like you can tell that terry gilliam just loves the idea of some of these and they are very kind of uh idyllic in terms of like we go to Greece and we meet Agamemnon is fighting a a uh, a minotaur or we go uh see Napoleon um played by Ian Holm who shows up in in two of these movies and and then I think in uh in Munchausen like they all have like this really big scale and all these locations are are huge feels very kind of John Hughesy I was thinking I think um uh the man who would be king like came up in my mind several times but 
everything is done with with a tongue in cheek aspect to it. So it's it's grand. And yes, it has some things. And this one actually has some like, uh, you know, stuff it's getting to as far as when we get to the the big showdown with good and evil and then how that's played off at the end and stuff like that. But uh, all of it is driven by just like making everything as big as possible and as uh, unexpected as possible at every turn. Yeah. Which I, I like that you keep bringing up how big it is, Jonathan, because you can at the same time that this movie feels large, you can see that they were on a budget over the course of this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and All you can see these, like the budgets kind of grow. Yeah, you can see you can watch it grow. He makes use of them. Yeah. And it's for, almost for everything like, he's got. Yeah. And we've talked about this before during other uh, topics we've covered on the pod. Uh, but one of the things uh, that, that typically makes for a more creative environment ironically is limitations placed on the artist mm-hmm. um and budget can often be one of those and you can you can see the the moments where they come up with something that's really unique and interesting to create uh, a visual effect for time travel or space time travel that uh is effective in the world that they made um but also not overly expensive my favorite is when they find the holes in between the 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 where the worlds or the points in time that they're traveling through on the map. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, when they they first stumble into the kid Kevin's bedroom and they find the the hole is the wall and they have to push the wall back. It's a really like simple effect. You just put the uh, the flat on like sliders and then shine a huge spotlight behind it and you yeah. get your effect. But it's a really effective and it's really cool and it adds to the idea that uh, you can bend space time reality. Like you can see the walls caving as you travel through it, which is really cool. Yeah. And there are a lot of instances where they just use a set to its best potential. So like that, it's just, you know, they built a kid's room set with a, with a false wall and, you know, we're able to manipulate it that way. That's actually kind of the only time I think that they, uh, sort of create a portal every other time the, the black, um, doorway kind of just appears for them, I think. Uh, but also the black doorway they, appears. They also uh, kind of uh, they they step through the the like large bag in uh, Greece. Oh, like that's they, true. They get and the then they also get sucked them. through the through the whirlpool at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's some creative uses of it. You, there's uh, imagination is, isn't just like a theme of like the plot or like the characters. Like it's it's oh no yeah effusive like throughout the creation of the film itself, which is great. Like that's what you want. Everything feels creative, even down to like the little touches. And you'll find this on all of Gilliam's movies, but the set design tends to be absolutely fabulous. Um, yeah. But and one, of my, I'm one of my at favorite like touches of the whole film. Yeah, sets. Is uh, the set in the final showdown. When we first enter it, one of the things, and I'm sure you noticed this too, Jonathan, it's it's not super hard to spot, but the the bricks that make up that room have little Lego pets. Yes, yes, On yes. top of the... Uh, on top of the bricks. It's like we're just in a child's imagination. Did you uh, notice? Which is effectively what the entire show is. Mm-hmm. There's another there's another element to that. And the uh, whenever they're pulling Kevin out, uh, when he comes back to quote-unquote reality, um, you see a chessboard that's like leaning against something. Half of it is, is leaned up. And then there are a bunch of you know, night pieces and stuff like on the bottom part of the chessboard. And in one of the wide shots in that showdown, you can see a checkered pattern on the, on the granite walls and stuff like that. So yeah, yeah, the whole thing is, is built up. And in that sense, I was actually thinking of like the Lego movie and the way that the Lego movie kind of incorporates the real world at the end and stuff like that. And of course there, there's tons of instances of that kind of thing in these kinds of movies where kids get sucked into a fantasy, like even, and this is also a connection that I was making throughout the entire uh, trilogy that we watched is um, it feels very Jim Henson. Uh, And of course, when you're thinking of imaginative filmmakers, Jim Henson is at, you know, right up there at the top of the list with directors like Terry Gilliam. Yeah, no, uh, this definitely does definitely feels kind of like dark crystal-y in a Mm. lot of ways. Um, I was thinking even labyrinth, that kind yeah, of thing. No labyrinth too. That makes a lot of sense. Um, one of the things that I do appreciate about this movie is it's uh, it's not just a kids movie. It's like a traditional kids movie, like a Grimm's fairy tale kids movie, because a lot of mm-hmm. characters just straight up die. Yeah, uh, no, they don't. But, hold, they don't sugarcoat the whole thing. 
Also, how how real do you think the events of this movie are within the setting of the movie? Do you think Kevin actually went on this adventure, or did he do it while hallucinated out on smoke? <laughs> um, that's a good question because there, I mean, there is the moment at the end where uh, his parents explode because they touch the evil. Um, so I don't. I mean, it could be yeah, just like a fever dream kind of thing. It does have also again. I'm going to be making so many connections throughout our conversations on all three of these movies because there's just so many striking visuals that kind of feel like a lot of other things in the same vein. The Time Bandits had also had a very Wizard of Ozzy kind of uh, a tone to it, especially when we come back to the real world and we see Sean Connery in the um, uh, fireman's uniform and stuff like that. So uh, it's, it's kind of real in the same way that Wizard of Oz is kind of real. Like these, these are people that, you know, relate to things that she's thinking and experiencing at that time in her life. But who knows if she actually went to Oz or not. So if I watch this film as a standalone, I would definitely say that it all really happened. Um, but viewing Gilliam's other work, I don't think it did. I think it was all just in Kevin's head. Uh, are you saying that that time bandits, Brazil and Munchausen are all ex- in the same EU? Yeah, basically. Okay. We're going to have to come up with like a Pixar theory about that. Well, I, mostly, mostly I just think that, so Gilliam does like twist endings uh, mm-hmm. for better or worse. I mean, he's a python for crying out loud. And he's also uh, ironic, well, actually not ironically, kind of fittingly for a comedian, a big fan of tragedy. Um, yeah, that's true. So I, I wouldn't be shocked if this was, you know, the tragic ending of, oh, you didn't really have those friends. They were just in your head the entire time. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing is set up pretty tragically because all we get, and I was thinking about this too. It's like, if a movie like this was made today, I feel like we would get a good 20 minutes of a day in the life of Kevin. He goes to school. Maybe he gets picked on. Maybe he has like one friend. He comes home. His parents, uh, you know, like we do see a little bit of his home life where his parents are on their uh, plastic covered couches and they're watching your money or your life, which in itself is a brilliant touch. Um, and their, their appliances are, are all going haywire. And then he goes to his room. But in this one, we really just get like a couple minutes with his parents. We just get that his parents are like in a very, they're, they have all the newest stuff, but they're also like very protective. Um, you know, even just by covering their couches, uh, we get that information, but we don't spend very much time on it at all before he goes up to his room and a freaking knight on a horse jumps over his bed and crashes through his wall. And we're like, okay, I guess we're we're doing this now. Yeah, no, it, it definitely has that left turn style of comedy, right? Like you just go go in and then you just keep taking that turn. Mm-hmm. It's always unexpected, but it always fits because it's all unexpected. Uh, everything fits if nothing fits, right? <laughs> right. Uh, which is also the structure of this movie is also just the structure of like your standard Monty Python episode. Yeah, I know. I mean, even like a uh, Holy Grail where, you know, you've got all the, the different quests, like each section of this movie is like just a different quest. And then it all kind of builds up to the one, you know, final boss, if you will. But each each section on its own is very, very distinct. Yeah, which helps, which helps. It, it kind of. I think it's one of those reasons why this film sticks so well in the memory is you can remember certain yeah. bits of it so distinctly. Everything has its own style. Everything's production designed so well. It's also just immensely quotable. Yeah, Slugs. it's super quotable. They can't even this, operate machinery. Yeah. This one also is super fun. I feel like that's important to point out. Like yeah, you yeah, haven't, yeah. There, there are films that Gilliam makes that aren't fun, and some of those films weren't necessarily meant to be unfun. So... Uh, the, I appreciate I appreciate when they when the fun is there and it's intentional. Um, yeah. Have we mentioned Sean Connery yet? Uh, I briefly did. Yeah, I mean it, it was so shocking when he's in here. There's like a shocking like celebrity cameo in each of the three films we're going to talk about today, and Sean Connery mm-hmm. is the one here. It's also just such a surprise too that he has. That I mean, he has the helmet on and he takes it off, and the audience yeah. is, always, is always like, "Ah, oh, Sean Connery." And then he talks to her like this. And then you're like, yes, it is Sean Connery. Um, did you notice a slight uh, Jacques Tati influence on the earlier part of this film, Jonathan? 
I th- I did, but I think it's only because I noticed you made a note about it. I don't know that I would have thought about it otherwise, but I can did see you where you're coming see, from. I don't think it's one of the ones we covered on his episode, but did you see Mon Uncle? Yeah, I did. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, that that's definitely what the earlier part feels like when they're dealing with appliances and... Um, there are elements like, of Brazil that feel like that, too. Yes, very much so. I think it comes from the same kind of terror, too, where it's like, ah. Uh, you know, the mo- modern world is full of conveniences, but is it really? Maybe we're just yeah. making, maybe progress can be overcomplication just for the sake of overcomplication. Uh, it's got a lot well, of the same. There's kind of a technological uh, skepticism that runs through the entire movie. Like, that's the entire plot of the evil one is totally driven by um, controlling mechanical things and digital things he was like what is it what's the thing that he says the it's one of the very first things that he says they're like what what gives you what what makes you so smart he's like because i have an understanding of digital watches and next i'm going to learn about the the computer and once i learn about the computer i'll learn about microchips and once i learn about microchips then i will be able to control the world or something like that so he's just like that's his whole like bent is very everything has to be uh mechanical and like the more cleverly engineered it is the better yeah i mean yeah no that that kind of uh existential progressive fear is definitely baked into this movie um and again it's kind of in brazil too cool. just taken to a darker darker place yeah yeah right like this is kind of like escapism i think it's a common thing to to be like ah man history was cool there's exciting things that happened whereas the monday day-to-day just doesn't yeah inspire in the same way that history seems to um and there's a lot to say about that but there but that is a heavy theme that runs through a lot of gilliam's work and also lines up with like his reasons for leaving america uh as a kid and going to europe um, I say as a kid, he was probably like 20 something, um, which could be considered a kid. But anyway, um, shall we move on to Brazil? Yeah, let's do it. All right, Jason, take it away. Brazil from 1985. In a dystopian, hyper bureaucratic alternative reality, Sam Lowry is a low level official in the records department with nothing much to be excited about or live for. He regularly daydreams of himself as a winged warrior, saving a damsel in distress from vicious demons. That is, until a typo on some paperwork turns his life upside down. In comes suspected terrorist Jill Layton, a woman who is trying to get an innocent man out of jail. The bureaucracy stonewalls her, but not before she catches Sam's eye. He finds himself entranced to the point that he begins behaving crazy, audaciously, in ways that he had never been in his life. Before long, he is labeled a terrorist, but he continues to chase his dream wherever it may lead. All right, Jonathan. So this movie is has a bigger budget, feels mm-hmm. more put together, and feels more structured than our previous film. Feels more like it, like it's going for something specific a little bit more. Like, I mean, I think we just have to throw it out there from the outset because this is very much a at first I thought it was a 1984 parody, but I don't think it is. I think it's like a a 1984 update almost or that's what it wants to be. I think it would have ended differently if it wanted to be like more parody, but it just has a lot of comedy inside of it. Yeah, 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 yeah. There is there is a lot of comedy within this tragedy. Um, yeah, but yeah, ultimately actually, it's not a light movie. No, not at all. It's very heavy. Uh, and there's actually a lot to say about how it ended up being that way. Um, but I think this is my favorite of these three films that we're talking about today. I feel like the structure is the most successful. Um, it has the most clearly established world out of all of them. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like the world building here is just it's top notch yeah. out of out of Gilliam's camp. I don't think yeah. he outdoes himself ever compared to, to to Brazil. Like I understand this world, and it's it's kind of like also the closest to the real world in a lot of ways. And I think that might be one of the reasons why it's so successful. Like it's a lot not of necessarily the stuff that he's kind of predicting is not super far off. Like everyone yeah. has a little TV in front of their face all the time. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. It's it's mostly like an exaggerated version of reality more yeah. than anything else, um, which makes it 
relatable. It fills in a lot of gaps for us uh, in terms of the world building that he doesn't have to spend time on screen working on. And yet it feels distinctly like a like a separate world. Like this it is it's it's like uh, and this is another thing that I kept coming back to with this movie is the world is is like a susical version of the world of Blade Runner. Does that make sense? It is. So this is when the first thing I thought when I watched this movie was this is where they got the style for how the Grinch stole Christmas with Jim Carrey from the year <laughs> 2000 came from because that's yeah, exactly could, it. Yeah, the fish eye, is, I mean, yeah, with all the pipes going everywhere, like the grungy neo-noir aspect of the lighting and the, the metropolis aspect was very Blade Runner. The, but the crazy, the the crazy camera angles. Yeah, the, the characters lenses, and the camera angles, all of that felt very Dr. sush The film effects. Uh, it, it does. It does in a lot of ways. And I think this is actually when people go to make Dr. Seuss films, this is often where they pull from to make them. As yeah, in which the is kind of surprising. But if you think about it, it also just matches his on paper style. Uh, but in yeah. 3D with these yeah, exaggerated right. bulbous shapes, soft gradients. If you notice, almost all of his films have a fairly soft look to them. They don't mm-hmm. become super sharp until he starts working in digital way down the line. Um, and then... Of course, this kind of like cutout feeling almost where people are like copy pasted from somewhere else almost into this place um, where they fit. But it's clear that maybe they they pop from the background slightly. Um, Also, a lot of uh, backlight effects, a lot of colored lights, a lot of um, haze effects. Uh, This film actually was a big influence on stuff like uh, Tim Burton's Batman and Robin and the Hudson proxy um, and how the Grinch stole Christmas as well. Um, and this is typically where people point to when they're saying they're doing the Gilliam style, uh, is, is this film, uh, which I absolutely adore. One of the other things I want to point out in here is, uh, another very common thing that Gilliam does. It's, uh, comes from the Baroque tradition, which even I'm like, Ooh, look at that man. He's got a $5 <laughs> word. <laughs> uh, whenever I say Baroque, um, but essentially the idea is of like uh, this dichotomy or this dissonance between two things that are right next to each other. So for instance, they have like these super high-tech computers and the super high-tech filing system, but also they still use a typewriter or they have this super yeah. fancy screen for the time for 1985 and they look at it using a low-tech magnifying glass. Uh, I think it also kind of points out like some of the ridiculousness of this also, the situation. plot wouldn't have even happened uh, if it wasn't a typewriter. Let's just point that out. That's very important. It's just a fly <laughs> in the ointment, um, which feels like something that could just be a coincidence. And typically we're like, ah, coincidences and plot are bad. But as the initiating incident that points out how ridiculous a system is yeah. when it caves, when one fly falls in one typewriter, it works It's perfectly. literally like a pebble at the top of a snowy mountain. It just starts an entire avalanche because but it starts with one guy in a room swatting a fly. That fly falls into the typewriter and causes one mistake of one letter. And by the end of the film, so many people's lives are ruined. Oh, yeah. Or just end it. Yeah, it gets it, gets, yeah. it really spirals again. It has that left turn flavor to it but in a more constructive plot. Yeah, and it um, builds. And when like, you do the that, build it's is, just called is really good. Yeah, it's just called escalation, um, right. which is the traditional term for it in a standard dramatic structure, um, which is done really well here uh, and maybe not done so well in other movies we're going to talk about today. But um, it's done super well here. And I think there's a reason why this is like his classic movie. Like this is the one that got into Criterion first. Right. Uh, what did you think about Robert De Niro in this movie, Jonathan? Did you Robert even notice he was in here? Was great. I did know he was in here. Yeah, I think I had seen in like the opening credits or something that he was that he was coming up. Um, and uh, yeah, he just kind of he blasts in. Um, I love just the concept that he's a rogue freelance, um, like mechanical AC worker, and the big. Uh, I don't even know if it's like a a national corporation or just like the one corporation that runs all the HVAC. Uh, it just like hates him because he's he's doing work on his own on the side and he loves the excitement of just, you know, going in, you, you 
find the problem, you fix it, you get out. And then the the actual like official air guys come and they just tear the entire apartment apart. Um, I just think he was a lot of fun and he comes in and he's he's great as both a kind of random side character and also as a red herring ultimately. Yeah, ultimate red herring for the twist ending. I also like that the idea of a terrorist to this government is just somebody who like fixes things. Like yeah, that's it. Really. That's what scares the government is someone who fixes things. Yeah, someone who fixes things without doing the right paperwork, though. Yeah, but as we see, if you do the right paperwork, it doesn't necessarily mean it gets fixed. They're no, more that's... obsessed with doing <laughs> the process than I they were. I wasn't sure the if those guys were sabotaging him because he was starting to get out of line and so they had like they had orders to destroy things or if they were just like really bad and that was just the point a little bit of column a a little bit of column b (laughs) yeah probably uh okay jonathan let's talk about the production problems on this movie well Uh, i was just gonna let's just bring up a couple more of these of these story things. I think the, the big one to hit is um, the dream sequences. Oh yeah, that's a good point. We <laughs> haven't talked about the crazed dream sequences. Yeah. Um, because for me, those dream sequences are what essentially push this into being like Gilliam's version of Vertigo. I can see that, yeah. Um, there was a shot in... It might have been... Munchausen, but there was a shot that reminded me a lot of vertigo of someone falling. Um, but yeah, I mean the, the elements of Sam Lowry and, and this is the very first thing that we learn about him. His boss is calling his name and then we smash cut to, uh, Icarus basically daydream. Yeah. Yeah. Him as a winged knight flying through the sky, saving damsels in distress from giant samurai demons dressed as David Bowie. Dressed as David Bowie. Yeah, no, that's a good point. That's a that's a cultural reference that isn't as recognizable now. Like, I didn't realize he was David Bowie until you just said that. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if that was intentional, but I'm familiar I can't with think David of Bowie any too. other. It's just in the yeah. 80s. Of course, you know who Bowie is. I can't think of any other reason that his face would have been painted quite that way. But that, again, kind of makes me think of uh like labyrinth and stuff it's like i don't know it's just like all these visual but that's such the the dream sequences are so different at least at the beginning when he's flying through the air and he sees the angelic um whatever the the damsel in distress name is uh who's only a damsel in distress really in his dreams and then she beats the crap out of him when, when he meets her in person uh but yeah and then the dreams just kind of go down darker and darker uh, pathways till we get to the end. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, it's kind of, it's, it's just structured narratively very well, um, which is nice. Like, I feel like yeah. you just hit this plot perfectly, pitch perfectly, and it fit his style so well. Um, it's, it's kind of like, in a way, a bit lightning in a bottle, which is badass. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right, can I talk about the controversy now? Go for it. All right, let's talk about the controversy now. Um, okay, so essentially, this was the first movie where, uh, I mean, Gilliam, obviously not a fan of authority, had always kind of butted heads with producers. Um, this whole but, movie is literally a criticism of authority. Yes. In general. Uh, but essentially... A lot of the producers at Columbia, which was the studio that was technically making the movie at the time, even though they were at the same time being sold to Sony, so it was chaotic. It was a chaotic time. Didn't love the ending he had planned for the movie, which was this dark ending, um, and so it, they recut it essentially secretly without him knowing, Ooh. and released a different version in theaters that was shorter with a happy ending, whereas abroad in like England and in Europe and the rest of the world, um, the hit Gilliam's cut, uh, was played, which was, uh, a little bit longer. It's the over two hour version that we watched for today's episode. Um, and it has the, uh, his, his proper tragic ending at the end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like the opposite of little shop of horrors, basically. Um, <laughs> But it is, it is essentially, it's a little dramatic, really. Like, you don't think about a studio 
not only changing the cut, but doing it secretly like that. Yeah, that's really sneaky. That's really sneaky. Um, and it was definitely one of those situations where somebody started off as kind of like the head of the studio when this was originally being made using the success of like Time Bandits, uh, Jabberwocky, uh, which came out in 77, and his other Python movies to kind of, you know, start up another project. It made sense. He hadn't flopped yet. Um, and and this movie performed well, not amazing in America, but well. Um, and essentially have somebody else come in partway through because the studio is going through this changeover uh, and, you know, clear a house on the previous projects, including changing the cut on this project. That's, that was actually super common practice, especially once you get into the new Hollywood or the American new wave part, uh, a section of American film history moving forward was when a new studio head would come in. The first yeah. thing they did would be to just cancel every other project that was currently going. Uh, it's not really a thing anymore because studios don't really function as studios anymore, but, uh, so much as like big ass rental houses with money. <laughs> um, but so it was, and this would not be the last controversy that Gilliam had. Uh, kind of from this point out, further on in his career, like nearly everything he worked on would have some kind of uh, controversy or issue or production problem or battle with producers on it. Yeah. Did you actually watch the uh, the alternate ending? I have not watched the alternate ending. Um, okay. It's, it's essentially the... pared down. It kind of takes yeah. his fantasy as real, right? I don't know. I, I haven't had a chance to watch it, but I do know it's included in the uh, Criterion edition, which is streaming on the Criterion channel at the moment. Interesting. Well, there you go. If you have access to it, uh, go check it out. Absolutely. Um, anything else about Brazil, Alex? I do not have anything. All right. Well, then let's move on to the adventures of Baron Munchausen from 1988. Jason, set us up. The adventures of Baron Munchausen from 1988. A European city lays war-torn and besieged by the cannon-wielding Ottoman army. A troop of players puts on a show about the audacious life of Baron Munchausen when the production is interrupted by Baron Munchausen himself, old and tottering, who claims they've gotten it all wrong. A kid in the theater company, Sally, goes with Munchausen on a quest to reunite his team of super-powerful friends and save the city, which is supposedly under siege because of Munchausen's antagonization of the Turks. The adventure seems impossible, but with the help of the speedy Berthold, the strong Albrecht, the large-lunged Gustavus, and the sharp-shot Adolphus, all decrepit old men themselves, the Baron and Sally just might be able to save the day, with a little imagination, of course. All right, Jonathan, what did you think of this big movie? <laughs> I thought it was pretty doggone big. Like, there are so many sets and so many... The so many things big. that are just completely constructed. Um, and it, this is something that makes me, again, back to Jim Henson, like the this type of filmmaking that is, it, it's basing it on material that is, uh, you know, you can kind of feel like it comes straight out of like a fantasy, uh, almost a children's book. Obviously, this one's not quite like a children's story, but... Uh, these things that are easy to write, but much harder to film. And yet when you're able to pull it off and especially when you're able to pull it off in live action, because these types of things are done almost exclusively in, um, animation these days. And so going back to a time when if you wanted a giant Island fish to swallow up four of your characters, You've got to make a giant island fish somehow, whether it's a miniature or whether you're making like a, a big fish mouth to, you know, put in a tank that you're going to film. You know, you are building all of these things and all of the details are being created by people. Uh, and it it just adds a texture to the film as a whole. And just to kind of like put out another sort of one to one on this, it's like. I, I just recently watched because uh, Criterion ran it as like a, a, a Saturday matinee. Um, but there was an old version of uh, The Little Prince that was directed by Stanley Donan, who uh, is very famous for doing a lot of very big musicals like Singing in the Rain. Uh, and then it's been remade more recently, 
most people will probably be familiar with the Netflix version of The Little Prince. Both are very good, but in Stanley Donan's version, uh, he had to make a bunch of these worlds and a bunch of these like very fantastical things uh, from the book himself. And he had to you know find a way to do that. There's a lot of lens tricks and stuff like that. Uh, but it just gives the films a very different texture and a very different feeling of like the intentionality that goes into it. And obviously, there's nothing wrong with animation and stuff like that. But I feel like it's almost entirely replaced this type of do it all. Um, and it's not to say there's no like visual effects or special effects, but the the bigness of the things that were made by hand is so impressive and and uh, just really enjoyable to watch. Yeah, the production design on this movie is phenomenal. I mean, you listed the Oscars at the top of the show, Jonathan, and it had all, That's all nominations it, yeah. in like all of the production design categories: costuming, sets, makeup, and of course, they're all amazing. The the from start to finish, all of the sets are good. I don't think any of them are bad. I can't I can't say anything bad about the sets, and except unless I want to say that maybe more effort went into the sets than the story. Yeah. Um, and that's a bit of a bummer because it, it, in a way, this this story has a very clear structure, right? It's mm-hmm. it, it doesn't take a lot of horribly random left turns. Like you don't know exactly where you're going next, but you know you're going to progress from reclaiming this member of the old crew to that member of the old crew. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, you've basically got you know three or four stops that you've got to make before you get back to point A and resolve yeah. the conflict set up at the beginning. And then and then Gilliam does a bunch of twists at the end. Um, but the pacing is off. Um, we don't even rescue our first of four crew members until yeah. halfway point of the film. They spend um, a lot of time doing the, uh, are you the real Baron thing? And I was like, okay, a lot of, we, we spend a lot of time it. on that. <laughs> um, and, and the, uh, and then we only have like, you know, 20 minutes left at the end for what should be like the full climax uh which is a bummer even though like the last 10 minutes of the movie i think are my favorite um Mm -hmm. yeah and then the other problem is that this is a story that more so than time bandits and kind of along the same lines of brazil the idea of who these people are as characters matters a lot to support this story um which all of the, all this production design is really cool. The sets are amazing. The fantasy is really tight, but the the character just isn't there. Yeah, like I still couldn't tell you who the Baron is as a person at the end of this film. I couldn't Besides, tell you who Sally like, is as and, a person at the end of this yeah. film. Like like almost none of them are. And so one of my favorite parts of this movie is this recurring bit where death keeps showing up and the Baron death somehow is, keeps escaping. Death steals the show. Honestly, that's. That's my favorite part of this whole movie, whenever death appears, uh, because it tells me the most about this character. Like, it kind of explains what's going on. And they have this cool thing where whenever the characters get back to adventuring, they get younger. I really like that. Yeah. Um, but whenever there's a he's lot of, disappointed in his adventure, he gets older. There's a lot of time spent on kind of, well, not that funny jokes or situations or jokes or situations that are funny, but go on for too long. And so it's just drawn out. Um, and a lot yeah. of the stuff is cool. Like the moon, the moon sequence with Robin Williams, who's our little celebrity cameo for this one is mm-hmm. really cool. Um, the, it's uh, actually, dancing in it's the, actually in the, the most, um, it, it, it almost set up the whole thing to be. And I think this is another thing that you noted that it feels very Gulliver's travels. Yeah. And in Gulliver's Travels, each of his um, destinations is a critique of is a societal critique of one in one form or another. And I think that that applies pretty well to the moon sequence as far as the, you know, people's heads and their bodies having different goals and kind of the, the clash that that is always creating, yeah. which I think was fun. But that wasn't really a theme of the whole movie. I almost felt like it should have. Yeah come up in more of the other subsequent sequences we we ha- there was a little bit with the like the unionizing workers in Hephaestus's volcano um but then they just kind of dropped that, that wasn't for, even the focus of that sequence yeah they kind of drop it for like this kind of unexplained love triangle plot that doesn't make a lot of sense 
Except for um, the fact that, and that's what I was going to say about the Baron, is like the only, the only character development that we get from him is kind of this Odyssean womanizing that every everywhere he goes, he he's left another woman heartbroken or whatever. Which is an interesting thing on paper, but the character of the Baron that we see doesn't really support that, right? Especially, like, yeah. What is it about the Baron that draws women to him? Flowers. Is that he goes on Roses adventures? Where he does the flower stuff is cool, but I totally missed it for the sake of not understanding any of these characters. <laughs> um, the you know you could almost say he's charming, but half of the time he's like a bumbling fool. Like yeah. he can't string like two coherent sentences together for most of the movie. Um, and then you know by the by the time we're like in the second hour and they're just like stacking finding uh, members of the crew on top of each other. To save time. The last two members of the crew, yeah, they barely matter at all, honestly. Yeah, yeah, they're, like, there. But, again, like, they kind of just, they have, like, a slapsticky skit. Yeah, each one of them has it. a thing. And that's what, like, yeah. from the very beginning, the moment that Eric Idle took off his, uh, his shackles and started to, like, wind up his run, and his feet were, like, bursting through the concrete or the stone floor, I was like, oh, this is a, a live action cartoon and it, it kind of is not all the way through, but it, it kind of just is like a Bugs Bunny cartoon for a lot of it. For a lot of it. Yeah. Which is fine. Like, that's great. That's a great theme, but a lot of it just lingers. Like it, it definitely feels like the story and the script and the pacing could have used like more time in the oven. Mm -hmm. Like, like you had like the start of a good idea, but you didn't follow through on it. Um, and so, you know, you're kind of just left going, huh? Um, and I will and say, then, I know that this is this is like U.S. ratings, but Time Bandits and Munchausen are both uh, PG. And of course, that's from the 80s. So take that for what you will. Uh, and Brazil is R. So um, there is an element where it it might have been aiming for a young audience. And so a lot of these things are exaggerated and they weren't trying to put the same kind of maturity into it. But I feel like like you're right. It would have benefited from more maturity uh you know even if you keep a bunch of the the fun stuff in there but don't like just don't sacrifice the stuff that you're going for just to put a couple extra silly bits in there yeah yeah um i mean even going back to that moment where uh bert hold played by eric idol is kind of winding up that section kind of goes on too long like i got it i got mm -hmm. it he really has to wind up but it didn't get funny again <laughs> and we didn't take that much time laugh. to set up any of the other guys superpower if you will because they all have their thing and yeah. we kind of get like one sequence where oh the one guy can hear him coming and the other guy can uh see him and then they shoot an apple out of a tree from like a million miles away or whatever but that all happens within you know, 30 seconds and Eric Idle gets a full minute of just like getting his run ready. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it kind of just goes to show there's so many good parts to this movie. It just mm -hmm. doesn't come together. Like a lot of it ends up being kind of a slog. And then the last like 12 minutes are really cool. And the last three minutes don't kind of make sense. Kind of don't. Like the end where they oh, walk yeah. outside and the that. Turks were never there. Like, I love that part. And then he's he, he has like a, a closing line that I don't love. Remind me like what he says every, at the very end. Every, everybody who had a talent for living happily ever after did oh, so. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which well, I kind of like That wasn't cheeky. the closing of the film. That was kind of the closing of his story where oh, he right. narrates his own death. And then he's like, and that was one of the many times that I died. And we're like, wait, what? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just didn't. I, I liked the ending section where, after, from the point after the story's been told to the moment they walk out of the gates, I mm -hmm. really like it. Um, it. It just felt like a good ending to the movie that was being told to us, um, even though it didn't make perfect sense. But that's okay because it didn't have to make perfect sense in this world. Um, it's just a shame that everything else before it kind of just, I don't know, meandered? Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's definitely a, a lot of setup and um, a lot of flash, but not not a ton of substance, really. 
Yeah. Which is a shame. Um, and unfortunately, it's not the last time Gilliam would make a movie kind of like that. Um, but it was this was the one where he really did have a huge budget problem on uh, on the film. He wanted to make it large, and I think it had a larger budget than his other two films we talked about today. Um, and he and the, the studio kept wanting to give him less. And of course, with sets this big and so many extras and so much of everything in the movie, it had to be big and it didn't really perform up to the expectation of a movie that got that big of a budget. I don't think it yeah. lost money, but it didn't perform as well. It was kind of like the end of this early uh, good Gilliam uh, streak that he had. And from here on out, like he would still make movies, he would still make features, but it would never be as easy as some of those earlier ones were to get support and money. Uh, now, he did continue to make movies, and many of those movies are very, yeah. very good. Uh, it's just it would be a harder road from here on out for him to make films. Yeah, I've um, seen that with other directors, too. So with that, let's slide into overall notes, Jonathan. Yeah, definitely. All right, so let's talk about some of the themes of uh, Terry Gilliam. Specifically, I feel like here we have to talk about imagination and fantasy because it's mm -hmm. important, and not just in the context of that all three of these films are fantasy films, but they all touch on the important importance of storytelling within our day-to-day -day lives uh, for each of the characters involved in these movies. Yeah, that's true, because, um, I mean... Munchausen is that's the entire structure is uh, they're they put on a play of uh, Baron Munchausen's life and he walks in himself in the flesh and is like, that's not what happened. Here's what happened. And then he he uh, spins this big yarn um, in Brazil. It's more like uh, Lowry has this narrative of the way that he sees himself and and his uh, knight in shining armor kind of a thing. And uh Time Bandits is a little bit less so, but you can still get this idea that, you know, whether or not the kid is telling himself a story about all these things that happened or if that was just kind of a coping mechanism for a terrible tragedy that happened to his family. Uh, so that one's a little more up for grabs, but that is kind of this theme that's going through is is what elements are uh, real, what what is in your imagination and how much does that crossover matter kind of? Yeah, that's fair. Um, yeah, I do like, so I do like his use of those, uh, again, to put on my fancy pants, Baroque dichotomies um, mm -hmm. that he uses in his storytelling. I feel like his art, art style just flows so well and uses those same techniques and is so eclectic in its mm -hmm. own right, and it pours over into his movies, that they feel just so gosh darn unique um, compared to anything else that uh, that you see from like the same time period. That's really cool. It's, it's kind of hard to find people with that signature of a unique style um, that kind of just feels like, even down to the production design, like it can only oh, be yeah. done by them. Um, yeah. Of course, it's not that he isn't without influences. He... Um, Obviously, he was influenced by his uh, long career, like 10, 20 years, something like that, working with uh, Monty Python. Um, and he would continue to work with Monty Python, obviously, throughout his life. Um, but also, he quotes his own biggest influence as being Federico Fellini. Um, Completely understandable. I'm sure fact, eight, eight and a half has got to be at the top of that list, huh? I mean, yes, eight and a half is. It actually <laughs> makes a lot of sense when you look at something like the left turnism and like essentially the surrealism of eight and a half. Oh yeah. Um, that it would be a big influence. And actually the original name for Brazil, Jonathan was going to be 1984 and a half, um, oh, which was okay. a reference both to George Orwell's 1984 and to Federico Fellini's eight and a half. Um, because while sense. the situation feels very 1984, the character feels kind of eight and a half. -y which oh, yeah. is like the weirdest way you could ever describe a character with numbers, <laughs> but it makes sense. And I would say, I will say like all of these films do have bringing back to what we were kind of setting up at the beginning, a, a quixotism to them. They're all about people who have this grand idea of what a hero is or what, um, 
what adventure is. Uh, and they just kind of like go after it sometimes smartly, sometimes foolhardily, uh, oftentimes foolhardily. Uh, but that I feel like we could, I could almost make a direct Don Quixote pin on all three of these with, you know, the kids obsession with, uh, chivalric stuff and that's around his room in brazil obviously his daydreams where he's literally a knight saving a damsel uh baron munchausen where he's telling himself all these uh he's telling these stories about himself uh going and saving the day and saving damsels and all this kind of stuff like these are directly from cervantes um and to the point where uh like you were saying gilliam almost kind of relates himself to uh Coyote in some sense in uh, a way that, you know, he kind of goes rogue on, uh, you know, leaving America and making films his own way, regardless of the way that uh, the studios want him to make it and that kind of thing. Um, and to the point where he actually, well, this is going to be a topic for the bonus podcast, but he does make a film based on uh, Don Quixote. And uh, that is a quixotic adventure in itself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we will talk about that. Um, but yes, and it's it and it's about a director. Uh, it's it's kind of obvious what it's actually about. Um, <laughs> but yes. Uh, anyway, we should point out how influential Terry Gilliam is. He has such a unique style, right? And we mentioned mm-hmm. a bunch of other films. Uh, did you mention Delicatessen? I did not. Uh, that is a movie that is also very influenced by. Terry Gilliam, we mentioned Batman, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, and other live-action Dr. Seuss trilogies since then. Um, Which are probably mostly influenced by the How the Grinch Stole Christmas live-action. So yeah, it's kind of yeah. a trickle-down from that It's from definitely that become a transitive property type thing. Yeah, uh, The Hudsucker Proxy. And you can kind of see it has like these wide angles. It has constructed, very obviously constructed sets. It has, uh, we mentioned the soft gradients of his artwork. He doesn't mm-hmm. use a lot of sharp focus. Well, I shouldn't say sharp focus. He he kind of uses a lot of haze effects to soften the appearance of um, of things on screen. And uh, I'm sure, although I don't have evidence or any interviews about it, some kind of gauze effect here and there or soft lighting or diffused lighting to mm-hmm. kind of get that softer effect, but also not to the extent of like 1980s Oscar bait movies, which are just like look out of focus to me because <laughs> um, I'm a digital kid. But um, yeah, the uh, like... Brazil uses a lot of haze that helps in the kind of neo-noir tone that the that the movie kind of leans into at some point. Yeah, yeah. I, we should also point out, uh, and I don't think, you know what, let me just pull it up. Let me tell you, Terry Gilliam has tell more about. unrealized projects than you could shake a stick at. <laughs> just so gosh darn many. I think he wanted to do... He wanted to do one of the Harry Potter movies, which I think actually would could have been pretty cool. And the first couple huh. Harry Potter movies kind of feel a little. Um, I could totally see that. Yeah, a little Terry Gilliam. Uh, he worked as an opera director. Uh, he tried to do uh, he before Amazon did it like a year or two ago. He tried to do an adaptation of Neil Gaiman's and Terry Pratchett's uh, comic uh, fantasy novel, Good Omens. Uh, which I, I could, could totally see him see. doing a Stardust, honestly. Yeah. Uh, he tried to do A Tale of Two Cities, uh, Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court. I can see all sense. of these in, yeah. his, in his style. style his style for could sure. do a lot of stuff, too. He could do a lot of stuff in it. He wanted to do a sequel to Dr. Strangelove. Um, oh, my gosh. That's, that uh, sequence of Munchausen riding on the cannonballs made me think of Dr. Strangelove. Uh, he's definitely likes that movie. Like, I mean, obviously, but it's, it's, it's it, the influence of it on his work is very much there. Yeah. He actually turned down offers to direct, um, who from Roger rabbit, Forrest Gump, oh, interesting. Braveheart, Braveheart and Terry Gilliam style would have been weird. That would have um, been really weird. But he was also considered to, but did not, uh, was not offered, I believe to direct the Truman show from 1998, which could have been a very Gilliam movie. I could have seen um, that too, yeah. He he's wanted to work on a bunch of stuff. He has a bunch of unrealized um films. He even worked with uh uh one of my fa- actually my favorite bands, uh lead 
guy. It's weird. My favorite band is Gorillaz, and they're all made up characters because it's an animated band. But it's really just Jamie Hewlett from uh, Blur doing uh, like all of the music and along with a bunch of guests. And then they have an animator. Um, but they wanted to do uh, a Journey to the West adaptation for the Gorillas, and they were going to have film and they were going to have Gilliam possibly direct it, which would have been so cool. I would have loved to have seen that. Um, yeah, but that's interesting. It was not to be. And I don't think he is the kind of guy who has more unrealized projects than other creators. Like, I think this is honestly kind of a modest list and we're only getting like half of it. Um, and I feel like everyone has a bunch. Uh, you have a million ideas, but you just don't have them all come to fruition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think he's just more vocal than other creators. Uh, and he does, he is kind of outspoken. Like, he showed up at the um, uh, at the IFC Center uh, with a sign that said, a studioless filmmaker, family to support, will direct for food. <laughs> like, he's, he's not, he, he's a cheeky bastard who doesn't yeah. like authority and will talk about it. Um, and one of the reasons why we know about all the problems with his, that he's come into production with, like um, Don, his Don Quixote movie, um, which, you know, like at one point, like one of the actors had a herniated disc. At another point, like a flood damaged the set. Like it was just a cursed production. Yeah. Um, very apocalypse now. Uh, but one of the reasons we know, we, we, I kind of associate him with that is because he talks about all of that stuff all the time. He's vocal about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I am aware of it. Um, <laughs> but that, that being said, I, I do think he's a very good director. Um, occasionally his stuff feels undercooked or feels a little like the focus was in the wrong place. Yeah. Or, or, or just, you know, like if you're, if you're making a movie about yourself, no one should probably make a movie about themselves. Like autobiographical films are a trap. Yeah. Um, I mean, not that we haven't covered several of those like, uh, down to Orson Welles, but yeah. Oh, I actually, one of the things that, that struck me about his career was he does have a very Orson Wellesian, uh, or Orson Wellesian take to him. He even kind of has like this idea, even going back to that sign, that kind of the feel to this career that he kind of had this Orson Welles style hit job placed on his career by Hollywood studios. Uh, after yeah, he had, I'm like, kind of getting that sense. At one time. I mean, similar kind of outspokenness. Um, I can't say that he was technically exiled, but you know, he almost exiled himself from America. Uh, mm-hmm. and like, well, actually he did. He, so he did both. He and his daughter renounced their American citizenship. Oh, wow. And when you do that, you have, I don't know if, how standard this is, but I just know in his case, he was told he was only allowed to spend 30 days total in the United States over the next 10 years from the time he did that. Oh my gosh. Yeah, no, it's a little bit of like an FU from, I guess, the government. Wow. Um, and and I think one of the reasons that some people do that, like expats move, especially famous expats, is to dodge taxes uh, yeah, it, it, there's literally a term for it, tax exile. I don't think that's what happened in Terry Gilliam's case, uh, but there are people who do that, uh, and yeah, I think it seems that might much be one more of the like reasons a that's a thing in uh, Gilliam's case. Yeah, it, it kind of felt like when um, Charlie Chaplin was had his citizenship revoked, mm. or it may not have been his citizenship. Was it his visa? I don't remember. I'm not sure. We covered it on a sh- on the show. It's just a shame I can't remember that. Yeah, go but back also, to our- you know. I can't we, we can't have like a freaking encyclopedic knowledge completely at hand constantly, um, at least not with these attitudes. So uh, <laughs> we're going to have to Google it and get back to y'all later. We'll work. Um, but anyway, Jonathan, do you want to tell everybody what we're talking about next time on the podcast? Yeah, I'm super excited about uh, the topic next time. It is a uh, a remake episode. We haven't done just like a straight remake episode in a while. Um, we've done a lot on the show, but we wanted to compare uh, 310 to Yuma, which most people will be familiar with the 2007 version starring uh, Russell Crowe and Christian Bale, which is great. I love that movie. Uh, but most people may not realize that it was actually a remake of a Western from 
exactly 50 years prior in 1957, also called 310 to Yuma. Uh, and both films kind of follow the same story, but they have some distinct differences. So I think it'll be interesting to look at the ways that you take a very good uh, older film and kind of update it for a modern visual aesthetic and story aesthetic, but do it in a way that that adds to it and doesn't uh, doesn't feel like it's ignoring the original material, but also feels like it is putting its own um, flair to it. Uh, so that is what we're going to be talking about next time. We're just going to talk about 310 to Yuma all day. And if you would like to hear more from us before that episode, uh, you can head over to Patreon where you can support us if you wish. Uh, if you do so, you'll be able to join our digital community on Discord where we live stream uh, episodes. Sometimes we do Netflix parties and stuff like that. Uh, just talk about movies. And um, we also have a bonus podcast. And the last episode of that was Room 8. Uh, uh, yeah, next time we're going to be talking about uh, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote which was directed by Terry Gilliam, as we've been setting up. So if you'd like to hear more about Terry Gilliam, head over to the bonus podcast and check it out. Well, that's about all the time we have for this episode. If you have movie suggestions for us or just want to reach out, I can be found on Twitter at at JS Satchel. And I'm at Alex Garinger. And I'm at the Blue Jay, 1994. And to find links to things that we talked about today, you can view them on the blog at thefilmlinks.com. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people will know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next time. All right, see ya. In another week, we're going to be talking about The Man Who Killed Don Quixote by Terry Gilliam. (laughs) Sorry. Is that your cat? (laughs) That was me (laughs) hissing at my cat for scratching the couch. Oh, okay. I gotcha. (laughs) Um, Sorry. Is that going to be our outro? I'm probably. I don't think we've had an episode. You have a scratching post right there. Come on. Sorry. I I don't think we've ever had an episode in the history of the filmings where Jonathan sounded like a bigger idiot than I have. This might be the first. Maybe. I'll, I'll put it in there. Um. Although I do have editorial control over what goes at the end.